You're listening to Spice Radio, 1200 AM. This is The Morning Buzz, and we are speaking to Margaret Adovkal, Managing Director at Resource Work Society. And this week's topic is nuclear's back, baby. What the federal government's pro-nuclear energy pivot says about the state of energy matters in Canada and around the world today. Plus, why is everything getting more expensive anyways? Margareta, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Wonderful to be here. Good morning. Let's get right into it, Margareta. Just as countries like Germany are turning away from nuclear, Canada's Prime Minister has said he's keen on the technology. What gives? Well, it's certainly some electrifying news, and it's uh, quite an excellent question. And uh, to quote the Prime Minister, he said, we're going to need a lot more energy. That's certainly true. The world is transitioning rapidly uh, from fossil fuels. Depends on who you ask how rapidly that transition is going. But nevertheless, we need uh, more and more renewable and clean energy to power our energy transformation. And he also said, we're going to have to be doing much more nuclear. Of course, the United States has made a pretty similar pivot. They've prioritized the shift to nuclear as part of a really massive multi-billion dollar, maybe total economic impact, trillion dollar clean energy plan. Uh, they called it the Inflation Reduction Act. A uh, little bit to do with inflation, but really a lot more to do with positioning the United States to essentially be the world's winner on this transition that's taking place. Uh, they want to ensure they're the top dog, as they have been for the last number of decades when it comes to clean tech. And it has forced a real reckoning for countries like Canada. You know, we've been pursuing a fairly intensive decarbonization of the economy for several years. And I think it's safe to say that until fairly recently, the vision for what the economy and its productivity would look like overall wasn't very well articulated. And uh, I'd say now the time has come, and uh, indeed uh, we're seeing answers uh, from Trudeau and his government on where they see the, the direction for Canada's industry uh, going. And our most recent federal budget actually sought to more meaningfully respond to some of the risks to investment competitiveness that have been posed by all of this activity and enthusiasm south of the border. Uh, our budget actually put aside a big chunk of money for a number of refundable tax credits, the Clean Electricity Investment Tax Credit, uh, is a fairly big one, and it really tries to incentivize investment in you know major uh, electricity generation infrastructure. Uh, lots of targeted supports were also included for technologies like small modular reactors, and uh, these are essentially small nuclear reactors that uh, can be pr- they can be placed uh, to produce electricity where it's needed. Um, so, someone uh, operating large industry in a province like Alberta may want to use. Uh, SMRs to massively decarbonize uh, the product they're producing. And uh, what we're seeing right now in North America as a whole is a pretty big departure from the prevailing political view that we see in large parts of Europe today. And I think that really underscores the unique economic, industrial, and political characteristics that we have as North Americans. Uh, you know, Europe's an interesting place. It's hyper-technocratic, I would say, by comparison to North America. And Speaking to everyday normal Europeans, they do every time I visit the continent, it becomes pretty apparent that although the policy direction is decidedly more progressive on some things, like energy and climate policy, uh, your average Europeans' worries and concerns are really not that different from everyone everywhere else in the world. And we all want our families to have economic choice. We want to eat tasty and nutritious things. We want to live in comfortable homes. We want to enjoy social and leisure activities, like seeing loved ones, traveling every so often, maintaining hobbies, and we like having opportunities to pursue more highly paid work relative to our potential so that we can, in fact, have greater economic choice. 
and to position our children for that through good education and a safe upbringing. And everything that we've been able to accomplish in this respect over the last number of decades has come down to the abundant, affordable energy that has been available to consumers the world over. And I think most people would agree that they want this energy to be sustainable as well, uh, even though that typically ranks a little bit lower on the priority scale when the abundance and affordability are not met. But all things considered, nuclear does a phenomenal job meeting all of these conditions. And even though a clear majority of Europeans, ranging from over 50% in Germany, you know, Germany, of course, just finished shuttering its last nuclear reactor, uh, to over 75% in countries like France, actually want to see nuclear in their energy mix. So it's a little bit baffling why um, there's such a shift and such a difference in the policy direction on the other side of the Atlantic, despite uh, what we know is a pretty intense and ongoing energy crisis taking place globally right now. So why did Germany pull the plug on it? Well, the same kinds of flustered responses that uh, Trudeau has actually seen from some Greens and New Democrats recently in response to his comments. Uh, you know, they've gotten a lot of attention and a lot of coverage, but they're not exactly, uh, uh, you know, the shift of a, the start of a massive shift. Uh, in fact, they reflect work that his government has been making pretty clear for the last six to eight months. Um, but uh, these comments really, really uh, reflect uh, sentiments that dominate the political discourse in Europe. Uh, they deem nuclear to be dirty and dangerous. And there was even one former Green member of Parliament uh, who actually crossed the floor to become a federal liberal who's been uh, leading the charge against uh, some of this uh, policy uh, shift towards nuclear. Um, you know, there's sort of one way to boil down the sentiment. Uh, it's a spicy take, but, you know, if you are anti-carbon and you're anti-nuclear, you're basically pro-blackout. And that's what uh, Robert Bryce, uh, the author of Power Hungry, uh, the myths of green energy and the real fuels of the future writes. And I think that's a really, really precise and succinct summary of uh, a lot of what the opponents of nuclear technology tend to stand for. I think in a general sense, democracies do a pretty good job reflecting their citizens' top priorities. You know, in highly developed countries, with highly developed democracies like Canada, popular will, which is what people want, what people care about, it's cultivated not just through people's lived experiences, but also through pretty sophisticated public relations machines that uh, big capital and big institutions can reliably deploy to their ends. And in many cases, well-organized special interests, um, like the very, very nihilistic anti-nuclear lobby, excel at doing this. And for years, they've used this to stoke safety fears about the technology. And essentially, once the public knows what it wants, or it has been persuaded of it by effective advocacy, people vote, they rally, they tell governments what they want, and then that political will is channeled through fairly sophisticated bureaucracies within governments that apply technical expertise in governing and public administration to deliver on the public's wishes at scale, to an extent. Uh, you know, their priorities are essentially framed uh, by uh, their own rather uniform worldview, and even the politicians that frame priorities. Um, they don't just reflect reflect a mix of what people want, but also the values of the governing class. And they also have a pretty uniform worldview. And uh, that's actually the best explanation I can come up with for why governments the world over are sometimes pursuing policies that challenge the essentials of what people want. And I think, in large part, that boils down to assuring material comfort. And the powers that be, at least in Europe, have uh, deemed nuclear energy to be unclean. Uh, you know, they've cited 
some of these uh, fairly um, unreliable and imprecise concerns about um, cleanliness, safety, reliability, and a lot of the anti-nuclear lobby had actually lost the wind in their proverbial sails until the Fukushima disaster happened in 2011. But then all of a sudden they had a new rallying cry. And I'm, I'm really disappointed that um, they're able to maintain such a stronghold on the political discourse, but it's incredibly reassuring that the Canadian Prime Minister sees the value of this technology and is willing to put the mechanisms of government behind it. It's long overdue. And uh, many across civil society, the Canadian Nuclear Association has been saying this is really positive industry, saying it's good, and many First Nations as well are really, really excited, uh, particularly in Saskatchewan. And, uh, you know, not to mention our capacity to deploy nuclear as a major industrial country, but we also have the capacity to produce uranium. And uh, that actually comes with huge benefits for communities uh, in provinces like Saskatchewan. Uh, Sean Willey, who's uh, the CEO of uh, First Nations Development Corporation, Desnefi, uh, actually said uh, not too long ago that um, Indigenous peoples want to play a role in solving the carbon issue, and uh, they want to invest in small nuclear reactors. They want to work on current nuclear reactors. They want to work in current nuclear plants. And uh, in an era of rising energy costs, widespread concerns about affordability across the board, bringing all options to the table is key, and they can come with huge benefits for communities, Canada, and the world as a whole. Mm-hmm. Now, tell us more about that. Why is the cost of energy making things more expensive? Well, essentially, um, everything that we produce uh, is the sum of the cost of the inputs and the energy that is uh, required to produce uh, transport product, uh, plus market interventions. And uh, there's one in particular that I wanted to uh, point out, the carbon price, uh, or the carbon tax, as some people call it, which actually just went up April 1st. And um, there's some interesting uh, research released by the Independent Parliamentary Budget Officer, uh, which is uh, an independent office that reports on uh, the substance of uh, federal policy. And it actually said that most people are going to end up paying, um, they're going to end up making money off of climate incentive payments. uh, But there's going to be some Canadians, particularly those who are better off, who will pay more in carbon taxes than they get back. And uh, they're also estimating, which is a little bit worrying, that the carbon tax uh, potentially leaves Canadians worse off by the end of the decade um, because for some people it's lowering incomes. Uh, it might even take people out of work. Um, so that is a bit of a cause for concern. Um, but it's important to note the whole point of carbon pricing, in contrast to investing in energy technologies like nuclear, is to make things that emit carbon more expensive. And, you know, surprise, surprise, some of the things that we enjoy most of all aren't exactly wonderful for the planet. Um, you know, if you're preparing a field for a crop like wheat. Uh, if you use livestock to pull your plowing equipment, uh, you've got to feed that livestock. It's not using all the calories you give it for that, that task. There's a lot of it, you know, efficiency loss. Uh, but if you're using a machine that is fueled by fossil fuels, you're actually getting remarkable efficiency, uh, very, very good utilization of every calorie of energy that you're feeding into the system. Um, and that's essentially why uh, fossil fuels are as remarkable as they are. Nuclear offers something very similar. It's very energetically dense. Um, so you avoid uh, you know, efficiency losses. You avoid costs being passed down to consumers. And I think in a general sense, if we're talking about carbon pricing, anyone who tells you that affordability can ultimately be fully reconciled with aggressive action on climate change through disincentives, they're totally out to lunch. You know, everything has to get more expensive, um, but we should also be looking at ways to reduce emissions uh, through innovation. And uh, 
even though a lot of governments are working to produce behavior change, uh, anything we can do to innovate towards new methods of generating and transmitting energy uh, more cheaply would come with major benefits for people. Um, and it would also, I think, in long term, ensure that uh, these measures weren't overthrown uh, in an election any time in the next couple of years or in decades to come. Now, Margaret, there's another big story. There's been a sizable protest in the nation's capital this week as federal public sector workers strike and picket. What's going on there? Well, it's uh, collective bargaining. That's the name of the game. And it's the foundation of modern labor organizing. You know, one worker alone can only negotiate with the value of their own labor. But uh, you bring in 155,000 workers, and, well, that's the number currently on strike across the entire federal public service. And they can demand a whole lot more. And uh, they've been making some waves. I think it's the ninth day of protest today. Uh, just yesterday, I saw a couple of them were bragging that they had prevented members of parliament from being able to make votes taking place on Parliament Hill. Mm. And, of course, uh, some bridges in the Ottawa area that have been, uh, you know, heavily um, heavily impacted. People can't get to work. And uh, I, I would say in a general sense, uh, it's not too long ago that we had another major protest uh, shut down the nation's capital. Uh, in that case, well... Not everyone was a fan, you know, as far as media coverage went. I'd say to that, the cultural alignment of your politics, um, how it's coded, it probably matters a lot more than how you protest or really even what you're protesting about. And public support for the striking workers tends to fall along partisan lines. Uh, you know, conservatives had the lowest level of support for strike demands like higher wages. That's what political sermons want. Um, and also greater assurances that they can work from home. Uh, earlier in the year, civil servants were actually asked to come back into the office two or three days a week. And uh, I, I think for a lot of people who don't have the benefit of having a nice, cushy, uh, you know, white-collar job, uh, some of these demands may seem a little bit ridiculous. Um, while we're facing some real, real challenges, you know, inadequate transit, housing, uh, we're having some huge issues with, with violence on the streets and on buses. Um, and, you know, there's uh, people who would do almost anything to uh, avoid that experience. Uh, so rather than, uh, you know, commuting to work, uh, they've decided they want to work from home for extended periods of time um, and have the taxpayer foot the bill for that. So I, I think it's a decision that the government needs to make. They need to reflect what Canadians are telling them. But um, I think a lot of people are going to be wondering about fairness for uh, workers as a whole, not just those who are in the employ of the taxpayer. If uh, the government just does fully concede to their demands and uh, doesn't uh, push back on some of them, they're a little bit more unreasonable. Mm-hmm. Let's see. Only time will tell. Margaret, as always, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. You take care. You too.